Awesome. Well, please feel free to, to grab a seat where you are. Hopefully, you are under a fan tonight, or you're at least well hydrated. We just want to say a big welcome along. If this is your first time popping into uh, Beyond, or if you've came in twice now, uh, we just really want to welcome you and say a big g'day. You're actually joining us tonight on part four of a uh, four-part series, oddly enough, called Visioneering. And Visioneering is a word we just kind of just made it up, really. It kind of sounds like a word you kind of want to mix up with another bachelor, like something you put alongside of a double degree just to sound really smart, like a Bachelor of Arts and Visioneering, or a Bachelor of Engineering and Visioneering. Uh, but there's nothing really smart about it. And in fact, uh, what we've been unpacking over the last four weeks, we've been exploring uh, this idea. And to quickly catch you up to speed uh, over the last three weeks, sorry, We've been exploring this idea that everyone actually ends up somewhere in life. Everybody wants to end up somewhere in life, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. And as we've been going uh, through the last three weeks, we've been saying these few people are actually people who have a vision. And if you were here on the first week, uh, Josh, one of our very good-looking communicators, actually got up and he talked about this idea that vision actually comes as a concern. Vision is actually something that comes from the heart. It's something that we feel and that we're drawn towards to, to make a change. And then week two, we looked at this idea that sometimes a vision actually requires a certain patience. It's not an immediate thing, but it actually happens over time. And if you were here last week as we unraveled uh, week three, we unpacked the idea that it is okay to know what our vision will look like before we know how to approach it. And if some of those key ideas actually jump out to you, uh, if you want to want to catch up with that, I, I'd strongly recommend to you jump onto our SoundCloud. It's Beyond Church AU. You'll find uh, the last three weeks on there, and you can go through that and, and unpack it from there. Uh, but tonight, as we kind of tie this series up, as we bring it all together and land this plane, I want to draw you in uh, to the idea that we've been focusing on, but more so from a different side. Because really, we've been looking at this idea of how to dis- uh, be disciplined by vision, how to be disciplined by vision. And as we unpack uh, this idea, I really want to draw it out for you. In fact, this is what we're going to hit tonight, what it actually looks like to be disciplined by this idea of a vision. And to, to give you a little bit of an uh, illustration, you would know uh, that it is challenging enough at times to actually be disciplined by a diet. It's challenging enough to be disciplined by exercise, to be disciplined financially. Maybe these were things that you actually had on your list this year as New Year's resolution. You know what it is like to be disciplined by goals. You know what it's like to be disciplined by these things that we set out for. So tonight we're going to look at this idea of what it actually means to be disciplined by a vision. And to bring you into that uh, a little bit more, I want to pitch you uh, this thing I had in my head going on when I was younger. And I was actually one of those kids that used to pick up a DS. And I wasn't really playing Pokemon as much as I was playing Nintendogs. And if you've ever played Nintendogs, you know it's the best flipping game in the world. Because uh, you literally get your own little family of puppies. And who doesn't want to be a father to a little family of puppies? Now, I had a little family of puppies, and they're all King Charles Cavaliers. In fact, uh, one of the dogs I had was a Ruby Cavie. And ever since I started playing Nintendogs, in my head, I knew that once I was old enough, one day I would have a Ruby Cavalier. And it came to my attention last year, on my birthday, as we were driving up to Landsborough in the car, having no idea where I was going, we pulled up into a little cul-de-sac, literally went up this valley of death to get to this house where the lady brought out this little red ruby cavalier. And if we actually flick the picture up, it might pop up on the screen 
there is a dog up there. On the left, that is my dog actually stopping me from taking my other dog on a walk. Uh, he is an absolute shocker. You see, when I actually got this puppy, the lady told me, he's like, listen, he, he's quiet. He's small. He, he's pretty calm. He's pretty reserved. I don't think he'll be that energetic. And in my head, I'm going, lady, you got no idea. I've played Nintendogs. This dog is going to be like the apex cavalier of the world. He's going to be in agility competitions. He's going to be the staunch dog. In fact, once I got him home, I'm thinking straight away, I'm like, I could probably whip some protein powder into his milk here. Let's build him up. Let's get him real good. I just wanted this dog to be the best dog in the world. I wanted him to be able to do everything. So I was jumping online. I was going on YouTube. I was seeing what other cavaliers could do, how I could train him to sit uh, to, to shake, uh, to roll over, do all those things. Then I was looking at the other things, like how they can dance in the air. Even saw a YouTube clip as to how you can teach a dog how to backflip. These are all things that I looked at on YouTube. I wanted this dog to be the best dog possible. Uh, but it, it came to my attention pretty quickly that my dog, and his name's Kobe. My dog Kobe, he, he was a bit of a different uh, dog. Uh, you see, in, in my head, I wanted all these things to happen. I wanted Kobe to be the dog I could take out of the house. I could take him to a coffee shop. I could sit down at the table. I could wait for the female attention to come over, and then I'd go, Kobe, backflip, boom, backflip. That's the type of dog I wanted out of Kobe. But I noticed really quickly that, that Kobe, Kobe was pretty special. You see, I couldn't really train Kobe to do what I really wanted him to do. And it was actually my mum who was the first person to tell me, Riley, this dog is never going to be obedient. Mum, 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 you don't get it. My dog's going to be the best dog around. Uh, he's going to be spot on. He's going to be this apex dog. He's going to be the best. But then I found out Kobe doesn't go out to the toilet at night time because he's scared of the dark. I've got this dog who is scared of the dark. And every time he poos inside, it's not him getting disciplined. It's me getting disciplined by mum. And when one comes over and tells me what's going on, that things are going wrong, I'm the one that cops the heat. So maybe uh, in my head, I kind of got to the stage where I settled on the fact maybe Kobe isn't going to be all I want him to be. But maybe, just maybe, I can teach him how to sit. So teaching him how to sit, I'm like straight off the bat, everyone knows the universal hand signal for sit. Flat palm, facing a 90 degree angle to the ground, of course. I did it to Kobe every day. Kobe, sit. Same reaction, just looking at me, nothing. Kobe, sit, same reaction. Then one day, one day Kobe sat, and that's when I was like, boom, I've got it. He's finally this trained dog. Kobe has sat. I went to reward him, and then he decided doing that bum drag thing that dogs do to wipe poo, like, off their bottom. I'm like, what have I done? What type of dog do I own? Now, so you know, I absolutely love my dog. Uh, he's an absolute rascal, but... There was a lot of people in my life coming up to me telling, telling me, Riley, this dog is not going to be what you want it to be. And it wasn't just my mom or my dad. My mates would come over and they would tell me, Riley, this dog is an absolute lunatic. He's actually insane. He's chasing his tail right now. And I have so much hope in him. Kobe, please just pull through this one time. Please pull through while we're at the cafe in front of the girls. Never ever would work. In fact, when we were at the cafe, it wasn't female attention around my age I was getting. It was more so like senior age people would come over and want to pat my dog. I'm like, oh, what is going on, Kobe? But I love my dog. But the critics, the critics that were coming to me and telling me, Kobe's just not going to be what you want him to be. It was something that took me a while uh, to get over. And see, these questions kind of got hurled at me. Um, and this vision that I had, I was told it was simply unrealistic. 
And this dog's never going to be trained. He's never going to be obedient. He's scared of the dark. It's simply unrealistic. And over time, the, the, the progress that I saw, it started to become more of a reflection of what people were saying, that it's just not a possibility. And I don't know if you've been uh, told this in your life, that there's things in your life that just aren't a possibility, that they're simply too realistic, that people come to you and tell you and critique you and the things that you think, the things you believe, and tell you that they can't happen. Because maybe for the, uh, these questions that are held, these are questions that you've encountered. Maybe you've been on the receiving end, or, or potentially maybe at times you're actually the person throwing them to other people. Because when we become critics of others' visions, we don't care as much to point out the flaws of the things first, but, but more so before we even think of building people up. And to unpack this for you, this idea of actually building people up, I actually want to bring you into this story uh, that we've been going through over the past couple of weeks. And it's the story of this guy called Nehemiah. And see, Nehemiah, who we've been looking at over the last few weeks, he, he's this guy who is disciplined by this set vision. He's disciplined by this set vision whilst also copying some serious heat from other people. And if you haven't been here in the last three weeks, that's cool. Let's do a quick catch-up and pump through it. You see, Nehemiah uh, was actually a cupbearer or a wine taster for a king known as King Artaxerxes. And if you heard that name before, maybe it's popped up in your history books. Maybe you're like, Riley, that sounds just like a really cool rapper's name. Probably would be a really cool rapper's name. But this king was a king of Persia. And see, Nehemiah actually goes to the king and after, after prayer, uh, he actually goes to him and he requests, he says, I need to return back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the, the home of the Jews. And at this stage, it was broken for a hundred years. In fact, it was conquered by these people known as the Babylonians. And they had came through and crushed its walls and crushed its gates. Jerusalem was just this absolute wasteland. And Nehemiah has this vision. This vision that he's, he's prayed on, he comes to the king and he asks if he can go out to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was actually not just a cupbearer, he was also a Jewish slave to the king. But at the same time, he might have actually been more than that. He might have been a friend, and in fact, he, he was actually an official. So the king says, Nehemiah, that's fine, you head out as long as you come back. But you head out to Jerusalem and do what you need to do. And as Nehemiah heads out to Jerusalem, he, he realizes things are worse than what he thought. In fact, the whole national self-esteem of Jerusalem is an absolute shambles. You see, the people that were living there uh, during the time, uh, they would never have known what it was like to actually live within a city that was functioning economically. All they know of Jerusalem is its time as a crumpled heap, never its time in all of its glory. So he comes in and Nehemiah is sussing this place out. He's scoping it out. He's talking to people because he has this vision to rebuild this wall. He wants to rebuild this wall and get Jerusalem up and going again. But during this time, there was actually warlords that had now dominated and they were in power and surrounded the, air, uh, the area and really anyone who could really walk into Jerusalem and take from it. See, the walls were crumpled. You could pass straight through it. People wouldn't really camp out there and start a family. In fact, Jerusalem was more of a place that you kind of drive through, you take your crops, you take what you need, you grab your chicken nuggies and you get out. So there's no real reason you need to be hanging around in Jerusalem. And you can see that the arrival of Nehemiah and his vision, the set vision that he has to rebuild the wall, would have sent some shivers into the people who are actually benefiting from it. In fact, uh, their reaction was something quite 
significant. The people who had been benefiting from Jerusalem all of a sudden had to start finding a way to react to this change, this rebuilding phase. And the change in the eyes of one particular warlord uh, known as Sanballat, who was probably gaining the most amount of wealth and power from Jerusalem, and the concern of Nehemiah's vision and the change occurring, it was perceived as a threat. It was perceived as a threat amongst these warlords. So I'll unpack with you through Nehemiah's account of what had happened. We're going to go through and look at what he actually wrote during this time and bring you into this story, not just as a reader, but look at how what actually happened can bring a certain attention to your vision, whether you're actually a follower of Jesus or not. So ultimately tonight, the agenda is to actually add value to you because we want to get you to the place where you want to get to too. So as we unpack this story of Nehemiah, he actually picks it up from when Sanballat is delivering some serious heat. I mean, he is throwing banter here. And in Nehemiah 4, verse 1 is where we're traveling along from. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly, uh, and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it? For themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burns, burn ones at that? And then even another warlord called Tobiah of the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone well for sure. Now, obviously we said Sambal was maybe a bit of a panic and Anakin, all right? He was freaking out a little bit at the threat, but the wars were going up, the change was coming. Ultimately, if Nehemiah's vision would become a success, it would mean the nation would actually gain back its economic and military power. And ultimately, Sanballat, he'd lose control. And really, Sanballat leaves no stone unturned as he goes through and starts questioning everything of these Jews that are working, because he is thorough with his criticism. He criticized the character of the builders, he questioned their ability, he questioned their commitment to finish what they started, and even questioned the feasibility of the project to start off with. That, even their willpower. It was doubtful as to whether or not this war would be completed. Sam Ballot was going in with fire. Then he's sneaky sidekick. Tobiah even jumps in. He's just like this Facebook troll. He described Nehemiah's entire workforce as incompetent. Even if they were able to finish the war, the weight of a fox would cause it to crumble. And Sam Ballot leveled his criticism with a specific purpose in mind. He wanted to discourage the workers to the point of quitting. And see, for me, I'm thinking like if I was a Jew sold in Nehemiah's vision, if I was one of these Jewish workers that were behind this wall, I'd be getting ready to go absolutely ham on these guys. I mean, I'd be, I'd be coming out uh, and, and looking these guys with their smugness and their gossip and their banner. I mean, it's so obvious to see Sam Ballot and Tobiah as the bad guys in this situation. And they need a firm right hook, left foot, but their criticism and their opinions at the same time probably felt pretty real in the minds of a lot of these Jews. You see, the Jews weren't necessarily the the fittest people. They weren't necessarily the fittest workers. They weren't the best trained or the most well-equipped people to build a city up. Their resources weren't stock standard. They didn't have the best gear. You could see why you'd be discouraged or see some truth behind Sandballot's words. Even when we share our vision or where we aspire to be in 10 years' time uh, with people, with others, more often than not, they will be the first to act as your critic. Now, I don't know what that looks like to you. It might be uh, 
whether it's uh, to say you're too small to make the team or, or maybe you shouldn't go for your manual license, maybe there's a better way to it. Uh, maybe if you're someone like me, you too were told by your primary school sweetheart that you'd never become an Olympic swimmer because you do tuck your rash shirt into your Speedos and it does look like a skirt. I don't know. Maybe for you, these things actually look like bigger things though. And the more serious things actually are a concern on your heart. See, there's things we really set our hearts on. And maybe you've been told the dream house you were saving up for that's just too financially out of your bank account. Uh, that getting into that specific relationship, it will never last. That your characteristics or personality isn't suited to that type of person. That, that really, you've got to find your own way in this world. That your standards are too high. Or that one thing you're chasing. Or even that one thing you believe in. It's simply unrealistic. See, there are some things that are said to us that knock us back hard. And they can. They can knock us back really hard and take our attention away from our vision and cause uh, ourselves to actually focus our attention to the words of others and take a long, hard look at who we are and where we're trying to get to. And and whether it's from a one-off conversation, whether it's from conversations that are cumulative and, and actually happen over time, we can start turning into our own critic. And at times, maybe, maybe you might find it's even the people closest to you that are actually the first to shed those opinions. The people that are closest to you that actually tell you that things won't work out to start off with. And because their opinion is actually so personal, you can actually find the fire that, that you had or have for your vision completely extinguished. And we could only imagine how opinions like these were actually spread and repeated throughout the region through the mouth of Sanballat and Tobiah. Before long, surely, it would have been circulating amongst the Jewish workers too. It would have been circulating and that they would have started chatting with one another and started to realize that there could be this truth behind what was being said, that they were being brought into these words that were being spread. But the people working were working with all their might. In fact, they were grinding hard, not just pumping to get this wall up, but they were doing it so, uh, also while copying the abuse of the locals who neighbored them. But they weren't discouraged. In fact, Nehemiah writes, so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. These Jews were completely fixated, completely bought on the vision and what had to happen, and the wall is now at half its height. Things were progressing. The work was half finished. It was an exciting but dangerous time. Much had been done, but much was left to do. You see, fatigue and discouragement, it was ready to set in if given any opportunity. And Sanballat had a plan to capitalize on this. See, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the tribes heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Now, you might be on the edge of your seat going, finally, it's going to be scraps on here. I mean, we're going to get the whole Lord of the Rings final battle scene. It's going to be behind the wall. It's going to be awesome. Gandalf's going to pop out. Legolas, Orlando Bloom. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be great. Show me the battle, Riley. Let's get me there. But hold your horses on the popcorn, because remember, these were feeble Jews. Fighting was never an answer. Fighting wasn't even a question. It wouldn't be ideal. And even though Nehemiah knew there was a plot to create chaos within Jerusalem, he responded saying, so we prayed to our God 
and set a guard as protection against them day and night. His response was not to fight, but to pray and set a guard as protection against them day and night. He doesn't even flinch at the threat. He knows the fight isn't an option and he's definitely not paralyzed by it. He doesn't call a halt to the construction and freeze. He doesn't leave the wall half built. Maybe if we leave the wall for now, we can revisit it in a couple of years. I don't know if you have DIY projects like that at your place where you're like, oh, it's getting tricky right now. Hun, maybe we can come back to the Ikea set like in a couple of years' time. Then we can unpack it. That wasn't Nehemiah's strat. He wasn't going to leave this wall half built. In fact, uh, maybe he was thinking uh, that if we abandon the wall now, it, it might even work in our favor. These are all things that I know I'd be thinking because in this moment in time, Uh, They simply couldn't afford a battle. See, Nehemiah doesn't abandon the vision. He and the Jews are disciplined by it. And they were disciplined in prayer. Which if you've just stepped in for the first time tonight, or this this whole follower of Jesus thing, it just doesn't really make sense uh, at all. It might even lead you to say, well, of of course they went to prayer, Riley. I mean, that's the Christian thing to do, you know, when things get tough. You sit and you pray and you just kind of wait and you wait. This is what I've heard of before. This is what I remember from Christian studies in schools and chapels. This is what that guy in the street told me at times, just pray and wait. But they pray their way out, uh, not just to get out of a situation that they're stuck in at all. They're not praying and just waiting for something to happen. So even though Nehemiah and the Jews were attentive in prayer, they remained completely attentive in following up with and working towards what they were praying for, but actually putting it into action. See, they would pray day and night. And they would set a guard as protection day and night. And in this way, their prayer, which drew them closer to God, it wasn't substituted to continue. It wasn't substituted as a reserve to actually continuing to build. But instead, it actually became even more effective in drawing them closer to the vision. There was no praying and waiting. When you're disciplined by the vision, these guys were praying and they were doing. See, Nehemiah doesn't abandon the vision. He and the Jews are disciplined by it. He stands firm. And instead, he revises and revisits his plans. And he sets a watch. He sets a guard. And the tension, it it continues to build because knowing there was a risk uh, that his people might be hurt. Uh, Nehemiah wants to back them as well, so he doesn't panic. He doesn't ditch the war. He simply revises his plans. And as we pick up into his account, he goes on to say, So on the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. My servants worked on constructions and half held the spears, shields, and bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Now those who carried burdens, which were loaded in such a way that each uh, labored on their work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. So these guys are walking around practically with a brick in one hand. They've got a weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who actually sounded the trumpet was beside me at all times. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. 
And so we laboured at the work, and half of them held their spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. Now, the war, the war was potentially going to be attacked. Now, mate Nehemiah had a, had a couple of options in light of fighting, freezing, or taking flight. So he could have done nothing and been all spiritual about it. Well, team, we can, we can trust in God. We can pray about it. God will get us out of this. Chill out. It's all good. He's, he's got it. And they could just sit there and kind of wait and hope that there would be no invasion. At the same time, Nehemiah could have completely freaked the freak out and started to see the job alone was actually going to be defending against the attack. His vision could have changed to purely a vision of just trying to keep people safe, that the real victory of it all would be just uh, to avoid the attack rather than finishing the war. But he doesn't choose to revise the vision. He simply revisits his plans and the strategy. And I don't know what that could look like uh, for you. Maybe when you were younger, you, you had a dream of ending up in a certain place by a certain age, or maybe when you were younger, or maybe even a couple of years ago, maybe this year, or maybe last month, or maybe even this week, you've actually had a sense of conviction that something should be done in your life, that you don't have to just wait around for January 1st to come anymore, that there is something that actually should be done in your life, not just the idea that it could be, but there is something that should be done in your life, that there is something that you can't afford not to do. You see, when we draw a vision from a concern, generally it means something not only to us, but actually the people to around us too. Which is why if you're sitting here tonight thinking about uh, the immature or the naive thought you had about uh, that particular vision, where you wanted to be by now, the chances are it could potentially be bugging you this year, it could potentially be bugging you last year, it could be uh, continually something that's stuck in your mind, something that you know isn't just something that could be done, but something that should be done, something that you need to do. And I can understand that because it seems in the world we live in, it's the people really who win the lottery in the sporting world, in the music world, in the business world, the financial lottery even, or the people with these, these crazy backstories that they came from uh, this place of, of oppression only really these are the people that are driven or have the drive to actually get where they want to be. They're the ones that are driven by this deeper source. And we've been saying over the last few weeks, as Chris said at the start, everyone ends up somewhere in life, but few people end up somewhere on purpose. You see, few people actually guard and are disciplined by their vision. Because what if... What if this vision you, you've let go of or had trouble seeing fade away wasn't as naive or as unrealistic as people have told you? Or even as naive or as unrealistic as you have told yourself? Because if there is something that you simply can't afford not to do in the time you have in this, this big thing called life, is there's something not worth guarding and building on, then what do you turn to? See, Nehemiah didn't lose sight of the vision with the possibility of an attack. He was disciplined by it, so he revises his plans to suit the challenge. See, some of the servants did the work of defending, and some uh, did the work of the building, and, and the workers had a sword strapped to them at all times. In fact, they had a weapon in one hand and a brick in the other. They were armed to guard themselves from an attack, 
and they were working away at the wall all at the same time. And even though Nehemiah knew they were separated far from one another, Nehemiah knew they had to keep in communication if the work was going to be done. So he always had the guy with the trumpet ready, ready to rally everyone. That way no one could be caught off guard. They were suited up at all times. They were ready at all times, never unprepared, always ready to respond if there was an attack from sunrise until dark. They were going to guard and build on this wall. They were going to guard and build on this vision. And it's great to look at the story of Nehemiah from the point of a reader and see how he dealt with things. But we said we want to unpack this story so it's actually applicable to you, so it actually added value to you. Uh, So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I want to pitch a little bit of a challenge to you. Uh, And we actually do this thing uh, at Beyond. It's called Four Monday because we believe what's the point in coming to church on Sunday? It's not going to change you or if it's not going to impact you for Monday. So to step you through this week and what the Four Monday is, we pretty much have a three-step action plan in place. And as we go through this Four Monday, I don't mind if you flick out your phone Uh, Because this week, I want to issue something to you. This is a three-step process. It's not a 12-step. It's not a five. But hopefully, it starts you moving in the direction of what you should be doing in life and not what you could be doing. If that's something uh, interests you, feel free to grab your phone out right now because the first step of this three-step plan, three simple steps. So I actually want to challenge you to actually create your own statement, potentially even a vision statement, something that you can write down Something that takes up no more than two sentences. Something that you can articulate in two sentences. What you want to create and who it will impact. To come up with a statement that can look at what you want to create and who it will impact. It could even be something as simple as what is on at the screen to look at how you're going to create something, your contribution, so that, and then your impact. See, I want to challenge you to place some value on yourself this week, on the things you can't afford not to do, and give yourself some time. Actually value yourself enough this week to give yourself some time in in the hecticness of the week to come up with a statement that you can go back to on your phone, your fridge, your wallet, journal, if you get it tattooed on your chest, I don't know, but you can come back to these two sentences that you can go to and know where you want to build on, where you want to end up. Two sentences that you can turn to when the critics come, or even when you start doubting yourself. Even when you start doubting the naive thought or the thing that you were told was too unrealistic. And that it's not a naive thought at all, even when it's under attack. I want to give you a statement that you can guard. And once you've even uh, had a go at even drafting what those two sentences could look like, step two Uh, It's pretty straightforward. In fact, once you've drafted what that statement could look like, I want you to build on it more, and I want to give you a baby step first to go off and launch off. I actually want to give you the time to actually share that statement with someone. And maybe that might be a weird thing. Maybe it might be a scary thing. Maybe there might have to be a little vulnerability there because we know people can be critical. But I want you to challenge you to share it with people, knowing it's from what you believe. And it could be someone close. It could be someone you you kind of know, but you don't really know. It could even be uh, someone that you might uh, grab from here tonight. 
as we enjoy in a meal. Because there's people here at Beyond that that would love uh, to add value to you. So you can go out and add value to others. So if there's someone you want to talk to tonight, it's even part of our Connect Desk, Connect Desk team. Feel free just to grab them by the arm. I don't think it will shock them too much, hopefully. Uh, but even if you want to grab that, I'm sure they'd be more than free to take you out for a coffee or, or a bevy or whatever you're after. Actually have a go at sharing your vision and walk through this vision, your concern with others. So then you can turn to how you can guard it and actually build on it. And then the third one, the, the final step. And this is where it might get a little bit weird, but hold on with me. Because I want to challenge you to actually pray on it. To actually pray on your vision. And that might sound super weird or even out of the question for you. Well, Riley, I can knock the first two off, but praying, oh, I don't know the whole follower of Jesus thing. And, and if that's not for you, I get it. I can understand. Uh, but planning sounds more practical than prayer. But, but what if there actually was this, this God that didn't just write up this whole world thing for us to get sucked into the disappointment of things, to get sucked into the critical side of things? When we don't know, uh, when we do get to where we want to be, if there was this bigger purpose, what would it look like for you to not just approach your life, your vision with this, this planned out approach, but actually be disciplined in your vision with prayer? Because all it really is, is just a conversation. I mean, the worst thing that can really happen is someone catches you talking to yourself. So I want to challenge you this week, even if you, you're not into the whole follow of Jesus thing, that's cool. Just challenge you, just take time to consider this idea of prayer before planning. Because if the source of your vision actually draws from something within yourself, your past, your, your experiences, your relationships, or even as it was for Nehemiah, if it actually draws from a source of prayer, what would it actually look like for you to press hard into the very thing responsible for the source of your vision to begin with? What would it look like for you to actually press hard into the source of the vision to begin with? Even for Nehemiah, a cupbearer, a slave to this king, he would have been absolutely packing it, knowing the source of his vision had sent him out to this crumpled old city of Jerusalem, a town surrounded by warlords and criminals. But he pressed hard into this vision God had for him. He pressed hard when things were going well, and he pressed hard when things were going rough. See, it's a lot simpler to see ourselves as a failure when plans don't work out. It's easy to lose drive when the critics rock up with their questions, and if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe this is something you find when people ask you how you can believe in what you believe. And if you're an unchurched person rocking up tonight with those questions, I can understand why uh, you'd even go about asking them. But what if? What if when you fail, you don't just have to trust yourself to pick yourself up? What if when you fail, you don't have to just pick yourself up and actually figure out the next step for yourself? What would it actually look like for you to press hard into a source that has set purpose for your life? This purpose that he considered, it was so important that he wanted to guard it. He actually wanted to build it, to build on you, so you can actually go out and build on others. The very thing that stirs the concern in your heart, what would it look like to be disciplined by the vision? Embrace the vision, knowing that you were designed for change and you're actually designed to impact others. Because after all, everyone ends up somewhere in life. 
you actually have an opportunity to end up somewhere on purpose. I'm going to pitch it to you this week. See how you go about recording your vision, share it with someone else, and be prayerful. To press hard into the source of it all. We're going to have some time to pray now. And as we do that, I'd actually love to invite uh, the band to jump back up so we can kick off into worship for the rest of the night. We might pray for now. Lord, I just want to pray uh, over the people and the, and the beyond community uh, that's inside this building tonight, Lord. Just pray over the concerns that are actually riding on their hearts, uh, the things that are actually pressing, uh, actually challenging them. Because, Lord, uh, we know that we all want to actually end up somewhere in life, that there are things that we simply can't afford not to do, that there is work that we simply can't afford not to do. There are relationships in our life that we simply can't afford not to invest in. So Lord, we have this, this short span in life. So I just pray this week we can, we can find the time just to reflect on this idea of vision. This vision, Lord, that, that we have been gifted to have for ourselves. This vision that can actually go out and impact others. Lord, that we have time this week to actually reflect on the vision you have for us how it will build us up, and how we can actually build up others. pray these things in your name. Amen.